Happy October! In upstate New York, it's the month of beautiful fall colors, falling leaves, scary tales, and busy journalists. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top stories. A sentence that surprised, I think it's fair to say, uh, pretty much everybody in the courtroom. We'll find out what's in the National Transportation Safety Board's long-awaited official report on the 2018 Schoharie limo crash. They basically had to recreate the accident using other brakes. And could this be the final three months of Andrew Cuomo's run as governor of New York? Columnist Chris Churchill has a theory. Biden is a little bit frail. He's a little bit older. He might need some muscle kind of in the White House, and Cuomo would would be good muscle. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Casey Seiler, the Times Union editor. We're going to go over some of the top headlines this week. Let's start with one that is probably fair to say near and dear to our journalistic hearts. Uh, Claire Bronfman was sentenced to several years in prison for her role in Nexium. Uh, Do you want to tell us what happened this week in court? On Wednesday, uh, Claire Bronfman, who is an heiress to the Seagram's fortune and had been a member of the upper echelon of Nexium for many, many years, and was seen by many people, uh, including federal prosecutors, as a significant funder of that shadowy organization's activities. She was sentenced following her guilty plea to 81 months in federal prison, which was a sentence that surprised I think it's fair to say uh, pretty much everybody in the courtroom, but the federal judge who imposed it. It was a long session that our Cops and Courts reporter Rob Gavin wrote about, lasted hours and hours as uh, 10 women presented victim impact statements about how Nexium and in some cases Bronfman herself personally had caused them great distress had fed them into what many people have described as Nexium's litigation machine. This all happens in what will be a season of sentencing for the uh, half dozen or so members of Nexium who have pleaded guilty, or in the case of Keith Ranieri, have been convicted of all charges against him. His sentencing is coming up at the end of October. He faces the possibility of life in prison. And if I was a member of Nexium who had taken a guilty plea, or if I were Keith Ranieri, which happily I am not, I would not be expecting uh, anything like uh, leniency from this judge. You can read all of our coverage of the season of sentencing, as you say, on timesunion.com. And we will know that Rob Gavin will be back down in Brooklyn at the end of this month. Moving on to COVID, our favorite topic here. 
What's going on? There's a spike in New York State now. Yeah, the state's positivity rate has crept up, but Governor Andrew Cuomo has explained that by and large, that uptick in the positivity rate is driven by uh, less than two dozen zip codes, many of them in Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods in and around Brooklyn and, and other neighborhoods in the New York City metropolitan area. Of course, there have been uh, many stories about examples of members of the Orthodox community uh, flouting um, pandemic protocols, such as large funerals that were mass heavily attended events, which uh, have caused a great tension in the city. Of course, there is the constant push and pull between religious liberty and the needs of public health. And that's clearly at play here. Now, the governor on Wednesday in his coronavirus briefing said that he had met or his people had met with Orthodox leaders and that there was a plan in place to ensure that there was um, greater adherence to things like uh, the state's mask mandate. It's a definite concern. Anytime there's a spike, uh, the state and public health officials are going to move in to see what they can do to kind of hammer it down. Mm. And again, you can see all of our coronavirus coverage, our ongoing coverage at timesunion.com. Moving on more locally, a young boy was fatally shot in a Detroit drive-by several weeks ago, and they had finally last week narrowed down to a suspect. Can we talk about what the latest is with that? Right. A a suspect, a young man, I believe 20 years old, was, was arrested it turned out that he had been not only a victim in a drive-by shooting himself, got his, his scalp creased, but had also been facing uh, numerous charges. And earlier this year, after being jailed for several months, was uh, let out of jail pursuant to a writ of habeas corpus that his defense counsel put in. And it turned out that the special prosecutor in his case had failed to fight that writ of habeas corpus. Um, In other words, failed to do what he could have done to keep that suspect uh, behind bars because he failed to note that the speedy trial rules had been suspended by Governor Cuomo as part of his coronavirus executive order. In other words, the special prosecutor could have responded and said, uh, this writ isn't proper because the clock essentially has stopped on speedy trial. So the 45 days in which the special special prosecutor had to indict him is essentially paused. But he didn't, which seems to be uh, an error on that special prosecutor's part. This guy was out. Now, of course, uh, the ultimate responsibility for The crime here um, lies with the person who did it, but it does seem to be a case where uh, a step was missed that um, allowed this suspect to be out on the street. All right. One last topic. You emceed a Back to Business event this week. We've had a series called Back to Business that speaks to local experts in the region uh, about kind of getting back on the horse after the COVID pandemic. Uh, Can you just give us a little recap of this week's seminar? Yeah, this was the sixth session that the Times Union has been doing in collaboration with Hugh Johnson Advisors. Uh, The topic this time was uh, what's going on on campuses, colleges and universities around the state. We had two 
outstanding uh, panelists, uh, David Holtgrave, who's the Dean of the School of Public Health at UAlbany, who has been a regular contributor to the Back to Business uh, webinars, and Chris Gibson, the former uh, congressman, uh, combat veteran, and the first non-Franciscan president of Siena College, both of whom talked about the larger context of uh, the pandemic, as well as how it's playing out on their own individual campuses. So it was a it was a fascinating discussion from two guys who are quite literally on the front lines of uh, of this battle. Thank you so much for joining us, Casey. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. It's been nearly two years since the tragic limousine crash in Schoharie County that killed 20 people. This week, the National Transportation Safety Board released its long-awaited report on the crash. Today, we meet in open session as required by the government and the Sunshine Act to consider the crash of a 2001 Ford Excursion XLT stretch limousine near Schoharie, New York on October the 6th. 2018. Reporter Larry Rulison has been following the story since that fateful October day in 2018, and he studied the report's findings in depth this week. I spoke to him afterward to find out what was in it. All right, so what happened this week? The NTSB had a board meeting, and it was concerning the Schoharie limo crash from 2018. What came out of it? At the meeting, what they do is, without showing the public the report, they approve the report that was done by their staff. And then they come out with an executive summary of their report, as well as the findings of their investigation. The issues that staff will present this morning include inadequate brake system maintenance, vehicle alteration affecting compliance with applicable federal motor carrier, federal motor vehicle safety standards. We knew the findings, what the findings would be because a lot of our coverage at the Times Union uh, had covered all those facts. But the key part of this report that they discussed is the probable cause. They came out with a probable cause of the crash, which everyone um, has been waiting for for two years. Essentially, I mean, from what I from what I gleaned from your article and from listening to this board meeting, they were pretty much putting full blame on on both the limousine company owner and the state, right? They said that you know the limousine company. I wouldn't really even call it a company. It was sort of like a mom pa, very small limousine service with four limous stretch limousines. All of them were horrible uh, vehicles, like very old that had been picked up on the cheap. And I wouldn't ride in any of them. The interesting thing was we always knew that the NTSB would blame the manager of the the limousine service now in Hussein, whose dad, Shahed Hussein, is this, is an FBI uh, informant who's now living in Pakistan. But what we weren't sure was how much the uh, NTSB would blame the state, the, the State Department of Transportation, which regulates uh, stretch limousines, and the de- Department of Motor Vehicles, which, you know, um, every, every vehicle gets registered through. And they came down hard on both the DOT and DMV, much harder than I ever imagined, even though at the Times Union, I've written dozens of stories about the shortfalls of both agencies in this whole process. So in a lot of ways, it just reinforced a lot of the work we had done. A lot of those stories were exclusive to us, and um, we had broken early on after the tragedy. Yeah, you've been you've been our reporter on this story from the very beginning. 
another factor that um, kind of came into play was the Schoharie County DA, right? She, uh, they accused her of kind of stonewalling the, their investigation, the NTSB investigation. The parallel criminal investigation conducted by the Schoharie County District Attorney's Office and the New York State Police significantly impeded and curtailed our typical investigative efforts. Yeah, and I, I really don't know why she did, because what that led to was, I think, that she told the state police, do not let the NTSB anywhere near any of the vehicle parts or the vehicle itself. What happened is after the crash, they took the limousine and the NTSB paid for this giant tent to hold the limousine um, as evidence. I, I think it's probably still being held in, at the state police uh, Troop G headquarters. But anyway, the NTSB paid for this tent. And usually under federal law, the state police or whatever investigating authority is doing the criminal investigation by federal law, they must cooperate with the um, NTSB investigators. And every time there's one of these um, crashes by a plane or boat, bus or limousine, uh, there's usually really good cooperation where they look at the evidence together. Well, in this case, the um, state police told, made the NTSB stay 100 feet away from the tent where they were examining the limousine. I don't even know how the NTSB could even see the limousine or the parts 100 feet away if they used binoculars or something like that. A telescope, maybe. <laughs> exactly. And now the state police yesterday disputed this account to me. So I really don't know what the truth was, but they were kept away. Like they were not allowed to get right up in front of it. And they were not allowed to ever even examine the brake parts of the um, limousine. And even though that was the key component to this whole case, because it was brake failure that led to the limousine and the 20 deaths, basically the limousine on the day of October 6, 2018, was coming down this really steep portion of Route 30 in Schoharie. And when the brakes failed, it went through an intersection. And it just so happened that at the end of this intersection with Route 30A, the limousine, which was traveling at more than 100 miles an hour, went into... Um, uh, the parking lot of the Apple Barrel Country Store and Cafe and hit two pedestrians and the car they were walking to. The car flipped over like four cars. The two pedestrians were instantly killed. And then the um, limousine ended up in a ditch and, and uh, all 18 people inside the limousine, including the driver, died in, almost instantly. Some were sort of still alive after, but they shortly died. But um, anyway, so the NTSB was never allowed to examine the brakes. So what they had to do was they basically took uh, another Ford excursion and tested the brakes on that excursion on a similar slope. They basically had to recreate the accident using other brakes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And they, they found that if the brakes were in good working order, the limousine would have been able to stop but they were very upset that they never got to see the original breaks. They only, they had just had to guess. It was, it was unprecedented that they didn't get this access. Now, I don't know why the um, Schoharie County D 
DA has just said, and the state police have just said that they didn't want the evidence being contaminated, but it's unprecedented that this would ever happen this way. And so the NTSB slammed the DA in Scary County and the state police. As far as I could tell, I think the state police were just acting on orders of the Susan Mallory, the Schoharie County District Attorney. And the irony is, is that she's in talks now to potentially accept a plea deal from the defendant, Nauman Hussein, who was the limousine service manager. So the, 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 whole, the case may never go to trial. All this other stuff was done to you know, protect the integrity of the evidence when it never, none of it may ever be uh, shown at trial. It doesn't make any sense. So that's been one of the biggest mysteries of all this. Interesting. It's such a complicated, layered story, for sure. Some of the images that they flashed during the board meeting were, were quite alarming. And there were pictures of the, and some of them I hadn't seen before, um, even though I've seen like dozens of them, of the limousine. And then the car that I said got hit, where the pedestrians were hit into the car they were walking to. I hate to be graphic, but the, you know, the driver got the worst of it. He just got uh, scrunched. You know, I hate to say it that way. He was the only one wearing a seatbelt in the in the limousine, and he just got crushed. And then the seventeen passengers, none of them were wearing seatbelts, so they just got thrown around like sardines. Because when it hit the um, embankment, the the limousine was still going eighty miles an hour. Witnesses said it flipped up like at a 45 degree angle, the back of the limousine and then slammed down. So you had the front impact and then the back of the limousine went up 45 degrees, if you could imagine, and then slammed back down. So they were thrown one way and then another and up and down. Oh, that's so hard to hear. Yeah, it is. It's hard to describe. So what happens next? I mean, you mentioned that the DA is, is you know, in talks uh, for a plea deal with Nauman Hussein, but, but what, what do we do with this NTSB report? The key part of this is, one, the DOT and DMV are being told that their actions were contributing factors. So I think you're going to see, you might see, I mean, the DMV has a new commissioner. I don't remember his name right now. The DOT has a relatively new commissioner. I wouldn't be surprised if they resigned, um, even though it wasn't on their watches. But also, the NTSB has made six recommendations to change the way they operate. One of the reasons why this limousine was on the road, um, it had been ordered off the road twice during two inspections. Now, these these inspections that were done by the state DOT in the months before the crash, these roadside inspections, there's, the DOT is supposed to follow up and make sure that the um, repairs that they ordered after the limousine was ordered off the road get done. Well, they never really got done. The DOT was told in back in 2014 to follow up more on these uh, road the, these roadside inspections to make sure that when it ordered a vehicle off the road that the owners made the repairs they needed. And in the case of this Scarhari uh, limo crash, even though the DOT was in contact with um, Naman Hussein 
about the limousine, the DOT never really followed up to make sure that he made the repairs that he said he was going to make. And the NTSB said, you know, you really should have just seized the vehicle's plates or like impounded the vehicle after these uh, inspections, especially after he kept driving it after the first failed inspection. And so I think you're going to see now in the uh, months after the crash in 2018, the late fall, in the fall of 2018, Governor Cuomo did pass a package of limousine safety bills that uh, make it easier for vehicles to be seized. Now, I just haven't really seen if those laws have been effective or not. Now, I'm pretty sure that there are very few stretch, super stretch limousines, you know, uh, with like 18 passengers still on the road in New York State. I, I doubt there's many left because these new laws that the governor Cuomo put into place make it very expensive and very risky to own these limousines anymore because of insurance rates now and fines have gone up and there's new criminal penalties if you don't keep them maintained. Not to mention people are probably a little bit turned off by. Yeah. 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 Like I haven't seen any of them on the road. Yeah. Um, and I bet if you think about it, what the industry itself is moving towards um, those big like cargo buses that you see, They're like the party buses that are more like buses. Interesting. Well, hopefully going forward, all the, the regulation that's been passed will will do nothing but good things. Um, but listen, I don't want to take any more of your time because you got more reporting to do. There's a lot of mystery still in this story. Yeah, I'll be writing for, uh, I'm sure, a couple more years. So. Yeah. Yeah. At least I have stories to write, but yeah, thanks. After the break, could a potential Biden administration feature Andrew Cuomo? Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. With the specter of the first presidential debate looming large this week, Times Union columnist Chris Churchill opened his column with an intriguing question. And I quote, Andrew Cuomo, Attorney General of the United States. How does that sound? Unquote. Naturally, myself and many readers wanted to know a little bit more. So I asked Chris Churchill, what's up? I do want to talk about your most recent column in which you hypothesized or you kind of raised a question that was very newsworthy and very interesting. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that question is? Yeah, it's a little gossipy, I suppose, you know, but it's uh, 
basically raising the possibility, the notion that Governor Cuomo might be leaving in January, that he might go work, assuming that Joe Biden wins the presidency, that he might go work for Joe Biden. I do think it's a real possibility. The governor has said he won't do it, but, you know, politicians say these things and then a few months later they, <laughs> they do the opposite. So Cuomo and Biden have been really pretty close as far as political allies go, right? In the last They are very close. Yeah, that's right. They are close. I mean, Cuomo endorsed the vice president very early on in this whole thing. And um he stuck with them. You know, there there were a lot of moments where Biden looked pretty weak, you know, after the Iowa caucuses or the Hampshire primary, it looked like he was not going to get the nomination. And Cuomo, you know, never, never wavered, never suggested that maybe, you know, Biden shouldn't be running or that he wasn't going to support Biden or anything like that. He was with him the whole way. And I think that based on things I've read and other things that you hear, they, they do have a kind of a close personal relationship. And they come from, you know, pretty much the same part of the Democratic Party. They're both people that like real progressives are skeptical of, a little bit old school kind of behind the scenes operators, people who get into like the nitty gritty of politics more than maybe ideas and ideology. Cuomo has said, as you said earlier in this interview, he said, hell no, I've been there, done that. I was in the Clinton administration. But what do you think it would take? Like just from your perspective, what do you think it would take to get him to go back to Washington? I think it would take the right job. I mean, this is what this, you know, I'm, what I was relaying to people is the kind of stuff that you hear around town, right? And, and people seem to think that there are certain jobs he might go for. Some people think attorney general would make sense, that he might be excited about that. You know, he was the attorney general of New York. He's a lawyer, obviously. Um, it's pretty high profile, especially now with, you know, the, all the criminal justice issues that are happening. And Cuomo has spoken up a little bit more on those issues lately than of course, you know, they're, they're front and center, so that's part of the reason why. But he, you know, he said things like there is no justice for Breonna Taylor and things like that that kind of have some people wondering if maybe he is kind of looking a little bit nationally at, at the issue. Maybe testing the waters a little bit to see what responses come back from his, his statements like that. Yeah, and also maybe just to build a little support if he does become the nominee, right? Because, you know, first of all, you have to be confirmed by the Senate, and he would supposedly or presumably want the support of the entire party. Chief of staff is another one that, you know, people have raised. That one is a little bit dicier to me because on the one hand, you could say that, you know, as I said in the column, that Biden is a little bit frail, he's a little bit older, and he might need some muscle kind of in the White House and Cuomo would, would be good muscle. You know, kind of, it's kind of like the Rahm Emanuel style of, uh, of a chief of staff. Remember him from the Obama administration and Mayor, uh, former mayor of Chicago as well. Yeah, and a not very good mayor of Chicago. But other people told me that, you know, chief of staff would be weird for Cuomo. He's kind of a guy who likes to be in charge of something. He's not like a team player. He's not going to like keep feathers unruffled and, and kind of do the things that a chief of staff has to do to keep the place running smoothly. The other one I raised in the column was Homeland Security, which actually makes a lot of sense to me. Biden could say, I'm putting him, you know, in charge of the pandemic response. It's a Homeland Security issue. Obviously, Cuomo's been very prominent nationally on that issue. Seems to think of himself as this kind of authority on the issue, has a book coming out on the issue. And it would, that would also allow Cuomo to kind of say, I know I'm kind of leaving New York in the lurch, but patriotism demands that I do this for my country kind of thing. 
you know, politicians like to say things like that. That makes a little bit of sense to me. And also, he's always like, I don't want to say jazzed, but he does seem to get a little bit enthused when there's a weather disaster and he gets to put on the, <laughs> the windbreaker and the khakis and like go out into the snowstorm and stuff, which is kind of what a Homeland Security guy does, right? Or the head that would do. So, you know, there's, there are ways in which that makes some sense. Now, what happens, say everything kind of falls into place for him and, you know, Biden is elected president, he's pulled in for attorney general, Homeland Security, whatever. What happens to New York? Well, and that's the interesting thing. I mean, on the one hand, you could say Cuomo would would not want to leave because he really would be leaving New York in a difficult position, right? I mean, the budget is a disaster. You know, we're still dealing with the coronavirus and the economic after effects, which are really pretty devastating, you know? Yeah. Um, but you could also flip that and say, well, that might be a reason why he would want to leave because like whoever's going to be governor of the next two years is going to be a totally miserable experience. Just grim, a grim time. And it's, you know, he's right now, he's kind of at the height of his popularity in terms of poll numbers and stuff. And that really can only go down from here because, you know, it's going to be budget cuts and layoffs and tax hikes and just all these miserable things that, you know, I can see him wanting to avoid. There, so there could be a little bit of a push where he might kind of want to go. And also, he's into his third term now. Third terms are really difficult. He's getting close to being as far as his dad. Yeah, and, and I said in the column, some people suspect that he would like to top his dad. You know, the pop psychology. I don't know. I'm was a, a father of this family. I don't have that father-son competition dynamic. It's totally foreign to me. So sure. maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. I really have no idea. But you could also spin that the other way and say he obviously loves his dad. He, maybe he wouldn't want to top him. Maybe, he, you know, sentimentality would say, hey, you know, I'd like, I don't want to outdo him. So uh, who knows? Who knows how that would play into it? Interesting. Well, you'll certainly have a lot of uh, fodder to write about come November, December, January, February in this regard. This week, the first presidential debate. What are your, what are your takeaways? What are your thoughts? I thought it was hard to watch in a lot of parts. I thought that um, obviously Trump was really, President Trump was really, really very aggressive. Um, I don't think that served him very well. I, um, I thought it was maybe the least informative debate I think I've ever seen. You know, I mean, it struck me at some point that like, this country is in total crisis. You know, unemployment is really high. Main streets are all shuttered up. People, there's this virus out there. People are worrying about how they're going to pay rent and do all this stuff. And there's just these two guys bickering the whole time. Like they hardly even, you would never know that the country was facing this kind of difficulty if you're watching that, you know? It just seemed like this personal grudge match. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, maybe Biden would have addressed that, some of that stuff more if he hadn't been getting interrupted constantly. Who knows? But, um, I don't know, I just wasn't, it wasn't a very edifying debate. I don't think it really changed very much. I don't think anyone was like, you know. Yeah, and it's not gonna turn the tide of the election. Now, do you think it's gonna be the same for the next two? Is it even worth it to have the next two debates? What are, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's worth it. There are a lot of, seem to be a lot of Biden supporters who say he shouldn't do it, which seems strange to me because they also seem to think that Biden won. So if he won and it's helping him, then why not keep doing it? I mean, I felt like there were a lot of times when Biden was starting to kind of waver and kind of go off on that, the word salad stuff that he does sometimes when, when Trump just kept interrupting them and didn't let him like make his, make the mistakes that he might've made, you know? Um, That's an interesting take. Yeah. You know, I, I think he has to do it. I don't, you know, I think you do owe it to the voters to do it. It would be weird to back out, especially after you've done one. Well, 
like I said before, we got lots to look forward to in the next couple of months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. Enjoy all that leaf peeping! <laughs>